he's an evil master of disguise. Zartan changes color right before your eyes. Zartan. Zartan changes color. Where's Zartan? I don't know any Zartan. Live from the Talking Joe Studios, it's Talking Joe. G.I. Joe, the very best, America's elite. Eliter than all the rest, trained to have no flaws. Defending liberty across the land, valor oversized. Bring out that big brass band, real heroes verified. Gotta read them all, you must agree. Elitist in history, G.I. Joe, or there could be no end in a world we must defend. G.I. Joe, a courageous crew, their colors red, white, and blue. Mess with them and they'll shoot you. G.I. Joe, gotta read them all. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best, possibly, and longest, possibly, dedicated G.I. Joe Comics podcast. If you're new to the show, you can find out all of the details over at the website. The website is talkingjoe.co.uk. Now, today we are continuing our look at the disavowed era of G.I. Joe with the backup story, The Past comes back from G.I. Joe America's Elite issues five and six, which were published by Devil's Due November and December 2005. For those of you reading along in trade form, this is collected in the 2007 trade paperback, Dreadnoughts Declassified. Now, without further ado, if you've ever watched his Hub Comic promo videos, You'll know him as a master of makeup and disguise, a ventriloquist, a linguist of over 20 languages and dialects, an acrobatic contortionist, and a practitioner of several mystic martial arts. It's a real... (laughs) It's a real extreme paranoid schizophrenic. It's Tim Finn. Wow. Uh, (laughs) Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners. Hello, Tim. I think that's your longest intro to date. Uh, so today we are talking about that backup story focused on uh, Zartan. Last time we spoke about America's elites, we covered the front bit of the story. So now we're going to talk about that extended backup story. Uh, let's do creative team. Creative team for The Past Comes Back story. Josh Blaylock, he's the head honcho at Devil's Due. Returning for some G.I. Joe writing. Art is Stanley Lau and Ray Toe of Imaginary Friends Studio. Uh, I think we'll come back to them in a minute. Letters, Steve Seeley and Brian J. Crowley. And edits, Mike O'Sullivan. We're not going to talk about the covers for these two issues, uh, America's Elite 5 and 6, because as these are backup stories, they don't really get covers and the covers uh generally for such comics would correspond to the lead story however the actual cover for issue five does feature uh, zartan and storm shadow 
facing off moodily in the swamp. So that image actually does connect to this backup. But since we talked about it in a previous episode, and boy, did I talk about it, <laughs> we're going to just get to a plot breakdown. Mark. Plot breakdown. Stalker and Storm Shadow, on orders by General Colton, sneak into the abandoned Dreadnought's base in the Florida Everglades to find a secret thing that Zartan has hidden. Xandar attacks them and is able to shoot Stalker with a poison arrow before capturing them in a pit in the ground. Zartan, Zarana, Zanya, Buzzer, Torch and Ripper arrive at the base to help find that secret item. Gung Ho has rescued the Joes from that trap, and those three Joes tussle with the Dreadnought crew. Zanya is able to retrieve a parcel from Zartan's hideout, but Storm Shadow is able to get hold of it. The story comes to a head with a standoff between Storm Shadow and Zartan. Zartan wants the contents of the case, while Storm Shadow wants the antidote for the poison to save his comrade Stalker. We find out that the case contains a photo of Zartan back when he was young with his brothers and parents when they were family. It was a picture that he took with him when he was a young boy when he was running away from the orphanage. It is revealed that Zartan uses it as a key to hold on to who he really is. Because he takes on so many personalities, he sometimes loses himself. It helps him understand who he really is. There we go. What struck me trying to write that was they, they do uh, fit in quite a lot into this story, given uh, there is a, a backup bonus feature. It, it does zip along at some pace and cover quite a lot of ground. Yeah, these two backups are 20, 21 pages. And it's unusual in a lot of comics that a backup story would be as long as the lead story. Mm, yeah. And... Um, in terms of cover price, uh, these two issues, you know, you are paying for it. But, um, you know, backup stories in the last you know, 5, 10, 15 years uh, in maybe not so much image comics uh, or smaller publishers like Devils do. But, you know, Marvel, DC, you know, they tend to be eight pages, 10 pages and uh, generally not as meaty or satisfying as lead stories. Mm. Um, Marvel and DC have been doing a lot of uh, 8 and $10 specials the last couple years, like for an anniversary issue of Amazing Spider-Man or, you know, the, the 30th anniversary Death of Superman special or like Marvel Voices or DC Pride. And they try and cram in a lot of writers and artists into these quadruple sized specials and i find generally the the stories are just too short to really have anything and i was surprised and impressed by how much happens in these two backups and uh how satisfying the story is very good um yeah i mean the the parallel here is is that they've had backup story before they had a wraith three-part uh backup story where they introduced the character of wraith and i believe that those were only, were they only three pages long? Three or five pages long? Yeah, they were very... Very short. short. Yeah. And my my expectation going into this was, was relatively low. I don't remember the details of the story, but I remembered not especially liking it at the time. 
So so went into it, as I say, with relatively low expectations. But rereading it, I, I enjoyed it quite a lot more than I thought I would, um, which is, <laughs> I think, quite often a nice surprise when um, when the only way is up. You're not disappointed. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm ready to not love a Josh Blaylock scripted uh, Devil's Do G.I. Joe story because you know, I find Blaylock a fascinating person and, you know, creative and business person. But in terms of him writing G.I. Joe stories, you know, that a lot of them didn't work for me. This story, and, and again, it's got plenty of pages to work with, but I feel like it it hits a sweet spot in terms of number of characters, number of uh, locations, number of important props. Mm. It's not overbooked, overburdened. Mm. You know, I, I think back to uh, Reinstated, the first four issues of G.I. Joe by Devil's Due that Blaylock wrote, which had, you know, 787 characters across four <laughs> issues and, you know, nanites and satellites and ninjas and, you know, 73 locations. And this touches on some heroes, some villains. It checks in just lightly with what is going on. I should say indirectly with what's going on at that moment in the main America's Elite story by Joe Casey, where, you know, Colton is in charge and uh, the Joes, or at least some of them, don't trust Storm Shadow. Blaylock is doing three things here. He's setting this in the era of Joe Casey's G.I. Joe. He's picking up on something that he, Blaylock, clearly wanted to get to, which is Zartan and the dreadnoughts and that backstory and status quo and he's also sort of running around in larry hama's playground because a thread of this is that uh stalker and storm shadow have a shared history and they're on this small mission together and also that hama did so much sort of mythology or world building for gi joe out of zartan as an antagonist and the Zartan Storm Shadow relationship, you know, and then there's even this reference, I forget which chapter it's in, chapter one or chapter two, where Stalker says to Storm Shadow, you know, we were in Southeast Asia together. And I thought, oh, right, 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 right. The, you know, the Lerp group. And here's a story that has both Zanya and Zarana in it. And it doesn't feel like one of them should have dropped out and the other could do both roles, yep. which is how I felt with these two characters in some previous Devil's Due stories. I, I didn't quite see what Zanya was bringing that was new. And I understand that she's a, a cool character for a lot of people. And I've, I have not loved this character, but she's got a great line of dialogue. She and Zorana have a great exchange. I, I like the story. Actually, that's, that's a sort of a point about line of, of dialogue that, um, that, that previously when we've been doing the, you know, devils that do read throughs. We've not necessarily called out a favourite line of dialogue because there hasn't always been one that that um, you know, strikes us. And um, and and re- reading these these two issues, there there were a few a few places I've not made a, a note of them, but uh, where where actually I thought, yeah, that that writing that dialogue actually is is pretty is pretty snappy. It sort of speaks to the character. It sort of moves the story along in a in a good way all of these different different things so i thought the writing in, in terms of the balance of how much 
words there were on a page and the actual dialogue and, and sort of that ringing true with the characters. I thought that was, that all worked, that all worked well. Yeah. I also liked that the, the Dreadnoughts, that, um, you know, Thrasher and Torch and Buzzer and Ripper get to do some stuff. There are there are some G.I. Joe stories where writers who aren't Larry Hama choose or forget that the vehicles are characters too. And we see, uh, what's the big Dreadnought motorcycle called? The three-wheeler with the gun? <sighs> the Dreadnought tricycle. Um. <laughs> well, I, I had it as a kid. It's just called the Dreadnought cycle. Dreadnought cycle. Uh, actually, I should say, I still have it. It's in a box down the hallway. But... I had it as a kid. That shows up. Uh, the devilfish show up for a couple panels. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of a little bit of ninja stuff, mm-hmm. and and it takes place, you know, in the swamp. So in in Zartan's actual backyard. So yeah, I, I think I, I think you made a good point just now that sort of there's a good balance or amount of story and dialogue for how much real estate there is. Um, there have been some. Blaylock stories where it feels like a lot's getting crammed in or a lot's getting crammed in at the end and it's rushed and there was one panel in this whole two two part story where I thought too many word balloons uh, something that this story does that is different and very different it has a narrator which Hama never does it actually has three narrators Colton and Stalker and Storm Shadow right Yes, and and they're color coded. So Colton's is green, a light green. Storm Shadows is a sort of light bluish gray, and Stalker's is sort of a, a a tan, a reddish tan pink. And that is one way in which I know that this is absolutely not a Larry Hama GI Joe story. Hama does not write with narration. He just you know will do a caption you know like Sierra Gordo or the Pit. Hmm. Yeah, I can't. That's a, it's a good observation. Um, so probably the most striking thing about the story is the the look of the story, the the sort of the style of the art, and it's very much of its of its time to to some degree. But it's this um, sort of almost painted computer art. So let's not to say that all of it necessarily has been created on a computer, but certainly the the final effect, you know, is is a sort of a computer, a computerized, not sort of glossy, sheeny, everything glowing with uh, lots of gradients type type look, but that a more sort of, you know, watercolory, gouache kind of uh, effect of uh, of com- of coloring in a sort of a computerized painterly style. Yeah, if you if you think of Dave Dorman's. G.I. Joe concept art or his Star Wars paintings, you know, his textures are very, um, his, his like skin and, and clothing and fabric are very smooth and like silky. Uh, and if you think of the, you know, the Hector Greedo explosions on the backs of the first couple years of G.I. Joe packaging, you can see the brush strokes. You can see red blobs of paint, orange blobs of paint, yellow blobs of paint. And when we think of computer coloring in comics, we almost always think of, you know, the sort of, you know, Marvel 2023 or Image 1993, lots of slick gradients. And, but, you know, if, you, if you're if you using a program like Photoshop or Painter, 
you can use many different kinds of brushes and many different kinds of finger quotes paint. You know, you can, as Mark just said, you can paint uh, digitally so that it looks like watercolor, right? Which is much more translucent. You see sort of layers of like brush strokes atop each other. Artwork can be a lot less uh, tight. And the effect here is, I would say, yes, it looks like watercolor, although of course it's digital. And there are there are some details and edges which have a sharpness to them, but overall there's a soft quality to everything. Uh, if I was to use a photographic term, I would say many things in the story are slightly, slightly out of focus. And the other way I would describe it is it looks a little bit like this is the color artwork on a layer underneath the inked black line work and that top layer was turned off. So when I saw the first page of this, I thought two things simultaneously. I thought, oh, wow, different. And also, oh, not quite there. <laughs> so, you know, like the, the first two panels, this owl, that's a good drawing painting of an owl. You know, like I, I can't do that in Photoshop or Painter. I don't even know if Painter still exists as a program. But, you know, then the next panel, Stalker, it sort of looks like he's kicking the, the, the owl, or I guess the owl got scared and is sort of taking off as Stalker's coming into view. And Stalker's sort of amount of detail and lack of, of line work, you know, I'm sort of losing his his boot and his other leg and his torso sort of in this like middle dark, you know, then, then you turn the page and, and this page looks like it's 80% of the way there. That even with a softer sort of digital painted watercolor style on the second page of the whole story, you know, the third panel storm shadows crouching on a tree branch up behind stalker. And I think, yeah, that's, that's 60% done. I, I need a little more. And, you know the sort of the rules and the the rules for the artist and the expectations for the the audience are different once you use a different tool. So if you're using pencil and ink and then you erase the pencils, the whole way that you would draw less detail with ink, it's a it's a whole different standard. You know you might draw like an outline of stock uh, of storm shadows shape on that branch and then just do a couple like sort of horizontal lines, you know, the way that like Jim Lee or Mark Silvestri sometimes kind of just stops drawing feet as feet get close to the ground. There, there's the outline, but they don't, they don't do any of the details, you know, like a Todd McFarlane, like shin and ankle and shoe. He kind of just stops drawing the interior detail of the laces, just the outline and like, you know, done. Or, you know, with ink, if you sort of draw less detail, maybe because comics sort of for us almost a century defaulted to ink if you draw with less detail it still registers as it can still register as finished and i feel like this is not the digital painted equivalent of uh registering as finished this one looks like a little rushed or unfinished and they, they play with slightly some slightly different techniques as well so that sort of cctv footage that they show of, of thresher and uh, Zarana and Road Pig, recorded by uh, an undercover cop, um, they is sort of like in a slightly different style. They sort of a little bit more line work, a bit um, yeah. There's sort of the fuzziness of of that of a sort of TV recording. It's a, sort of yeah, it's got a filter it. a filter over it with horizontal lines for interlacing. And then 
than the photos. Yeah, and then they've got like a couple of pages over. It's uh, yeah, I think it as you say, it's probably Colton looking at photos of the dreadnoughts, um, and they're in a kind of a sepia color, but with the the harder, more traditional comic line work to to them. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't it doesn't sort of strike you as jumping out as looking out of place. So, so I think it's quite nicely done. Uh, I, I want to be a little more specific here with my with my criticism of the of the art style. It's not just that the painted art looks a little unfinished to me, because I, I sort of got into it once I was a few pages in. This is now the visual language of the story, and I turn the page and there's more of it. And, you know, the storytelling is pretty clear and the story itself is good. What I'm also seeing, though, is particularly with the vehicles, you know, I, I don't I don't know that in this story in 2005, I don't think Lao is all that proficient. You know, the first panel where we see the, the devilfish, you know, one of them looks a little smaller than the other. And then, you know, the next page we see the motorcycles. And later on when we see the motorcycles, you know, some of the sort of parts of it don't quite they're not quite symmetrical or they're just a little out of perspective or they're a little inconsistent. And so what I think I see here is a color artist who maybe not for the first time, but for an early time is not just coloring someone else's art, but doing all of the art. And so it's a cool first or early step, particularly when you sort of remember who this artist turns into a little later. But you know, like the faces look good, like anatomy is pretty good, but some of the poses during the fights, you know, a little awkward, you know, some of the, again, some of this equipment and tech I'm not convinced by. So is that a good segue? Should we talk about the artist and and who he turns into? Yeah. So uh, the artist is credited as Stanley Lau, but more commonly known as being uh, Stanley Art Germ Lau these days, who's very famous for particularly um, variant covers in a kind of, uh, particularly for female characters in a sort of slightly manga-influenced, kind of cute, slightly cheesecake-y style. So a bit of background, born and bred in Hong Kong, uh, Stanley Lau is an illustrator, designer, concept artist, creative director, and co-founder of Imaginary Friends Studios. So that's the uh, Imaginary Friends credited uh, here. A world-acclaimed digital art studio that produces high-quality artworks for the likes of Capcom, DC Comics, Marvel Comics, and other giants in the entertainment and gaming industry. So uh, yeah, called out as specifically a digital art studio, and and sort of that will be, I think, the the coloring probably the coloring aspects of of the credits of Imaginary Friends uh, here. Uh, formerly trained in graphic design and advertising, Stanley's art is imbued with a strong sense of aesthetics and visual fluidity, a blend of Eastern and Western styles, better known by his handle Art Germ. Stanley's art continues to infect and inspire new generations. So on his website, he says, to date, Stanley's online art gallery on DeviantArt has been viewed for more than 50 million times and has more than a million followers on social media. So so these days, you know, he, he is definitely a big deal and, and very, you know, a very hot artist. And and it sort of makes me think as well of, of 
devil's juice pedigree here of of finding young artists breaking in in the early 2000s getting them on their books before they go on to to bigger things so we've had a number of artists on the on the books that we've talked about before like Chris Lai that we were talking about on Arishikagi Showdown and of course Stefano Caselli on America's Elite that that we've just been reading recently uh, amongst many others yeah this is a good point about uh devils do finding talent that that went on to bigger things stanley lau stanley art germ lau has done some other gi joe work he did a um new york comic-con exclusive cover for idw issue 218 of the baroness and maybe maybe that's all i think I think in my mind there have been covers of there have been variant covers of G.I. Joe with, you know, Cover Girl the Baroness or Scarlet, uh, where someone is drawing in a style in the last ten years similar to Art Germ's uh variant covers. Mm-hmm. And so I thought yeah. I thought there might have been more. But I when I read this story, when I read it and was taking notes, I, I didn't connect Stanley Lau with Stanley Art Germ Lau. Mm. And it wasn't until I sat down and looked at my notes and did some Googling uh, that I was reminded, oh, this this is the guy. This guy is, is very, very popular. <laughs> so Imaginary Friends Studio was founded in 2005. And so, mm. uh, you know, these, these issues of G.I. Joe... You know, issue five is cover dated November 2005, which means it probably came out in September, October 2005. And uh, we've we've seen IFS, we've seen Imaginary Friends Studio on some previous issues of G.I. Joe, although since we're reading a little out of order, I couldn't say exactly uh, from when, but let's say 2005. And the the lead story of, of this issue, the one that we already talked about uh, in issue five, is colored by Kendrick Lim of Imaginary Friends Studio. And there are three founders of Imaginary Friends Studio, Stanley Lau, Kendrick Lim, and Kai Lim. You know, maybe if, if we have um, Blaylock or an editor again or on a future episode, one of our questions could be, uh, where do you find these guys? Or where do you find this guy? Um, so Imaginary Friends Studios uh, has done a lot of work for DC, Marvel, Image, Top Cow, Hasbro, Sideshow, Capcom, Square Enix, uh, Ubisoft, uh, you know, video games, lot, lots of stuff. So the, the, the second chapter of this backup story is credited to uh, Stanley Lau again, and also Ray Toe, that's T-O-H, of Imaginary Friends Studios. And it looks like Ray Toe is no longer a part of uh, IFS, but uh, has his own studio um, that uh, in 2013, he founded a studio in Singapore called the Morning Rain Studio. Uh, concept art and, and illustration for a lot of companies that we don't think of when we're reading comics, uh, like Compaq or Sony Ericsson, but also con- concept uh, art. And the the coloring style through the two issues does look very consistent, at least to my eyes. So I wonder, I wonder if perhaps uh, the Ray Toe's 
credits are more on maybe layouts or the pencils that sit behind it because particularly in that second issue there there are a few bits that maybe look less consistent and a few bits that look to my eyes as well a little bit wonky um so for example the page which is like the biggest confrontation i guess between zartan and uh, storm shadow in the second part where storm shadow is knocking the gun out of zartan's hands zartan's torso and his hands and and his body language look a bit weird as as do storm shadows and again when storm shadow is being kicked in the face at the bottom of that page um his his sort of posture just looks a little bit odd so some of the art particularly just the the figure composition looks a little bit strange in places yeah some of the poses and panel layouts uh in chapter two are not great um many of the faces uh like the the opening three pages with some dreadnoughts and with gung-ho look good and even a smidge better than the first chapter but yeah there's a lot of inconsistency in this second chapter and you know when when torch fires his uh flamethrower that looks like i don't quite have the words for this that looks like you know like sort of real flame from like a 3d program as opposed to a photo of flame or like drawing two-dimensional flame in a comic book style and that's cool, but it's also weird because it's it's such a different sort of style ethos and it looks a little out of place. I'm also concerned because Blowtorch sets fire to some trees in his fight with Gung Ho and no one talks about it for the rest of, rather, for the, rest of the story. Um, <laughs> Torch, just, that was. Just... You said Blowtorch. Wait, what did I say? Blowtorch rather than Torch. Oh! <laughs> Uh, excuse me. Yes, yes. There's a there's a dreadnought villain named Torch, and he's in the story. And the Joe Blowtorch. Is- <laughs> I might be able to edit to just get rid of the blow, okay. <laughs> and then you'll be saved. But you know, they're in a swamp. You know, can right. you set fire to a swamp? You know. <laughs> so, um, you know, similarly, the art in the sort of flashbacks where uh, Zartan is the, the the sort of years ago flashback where. Zartan, you can't quite tell it's him, but it's him, uh, is assassinating someone. And then he's sitting in a chair in a big room with a red carpet getting complimented and and recruited. Uh, You know, that art is back to this like 60% tight, 60% finished quality. Like the, the lighting, the sense of light is good in terms of light source and shadows and color, but the it's missing a, a level of finish or polish. I thought that Zanya going into this sort of underground room bunker of Zartan's was a really fascinating scene because uh, there are several wordless panels, right? It's a two-page scene split. It's it's one page and another page, right? So, you know, she's going down these stairs, wordless. She presses a button, just a sound effect. Door opens, wordless. She talks to herself as she sees the whole room. And you see sort of his old armor and a big framed photo of, I guess him, but I also wondered if it was his dad, a storm shadow, cowl, and hood. And then what I think are Zartan's three guns, like his gun, but three times in glass mm-hmm. cases, which I thought was 
Um, I I thought this scene, this location was was overdone, but I was okay. It's sort of like if you made a trophy room for yourself, you know? It's like, I'm going to put my bowling trophies under glass. But, uh, you know, this room is also some kind of uh, sanctuary, right? There's there's the bow, the famous bow, and then mm-hmm. and there are some awards or medals, and uh, it's it's hard to see because it's the size of my fingernail. But the the sort of Arashikage family portrait of the seven or so, you know, like hard master, blind master, soft master, mm-hmm. that's that's above that weird sound effect with the the five v's which i think goes um (laughs) zanya's looking at it sort of over her shoulder but i I also just sort of wondered it's like okay she pulls this black circular carpet up from the floor to reveal this little sliding cover and under it is like a a black square with buttons on it so you'd push in a code and then in the next panel, it says, deet, doot, deet, which I guess is the sound <laughs> of her pushing buttons. But that sound effect is in the wrong place if right. she's pu- mm-hmm. pushing buttons. Uh, but because this is left to right, that sound effect needs to happen before the V, 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 V sound effect. So it says there's an art and lettering error here, but I'll let it, I'll let it slide. And I think the V, 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 V is for that little sort of square under the third gun. You think... Something else is sliding out of the way in the low wall. Right. And right. that's a safe. But I feel like there's a panel missing where now she needs to be closer to the safe. And I thought, cool. Also, this is overly complicated. Like, okay. <laughs> there's a under the rug, there's a door, and then there are buttons. And then yep. over on the other wall, there's another door with a safe. And she never we never see her open the safe or pull anything yep. out of the safe. In the next scene, she is just getting on the swamp fire with a little briefcase. Yeah, it would make it would yeah make more sense maybe if they just sort of simplified that and it was a safe underneath the rug and yeah. she gets the, the yes. case out. So so uh, so this scene gets the Josh Blaylock Devils Do Too Much Going On award <laughs> uh, for this Josh Blaylock story. This gets the reinstated Too Much Happening in Four Issues uh, story uh, award. Okay, very good. Let's talk Gung Ho. Um, so, so he's returned to the story. He's not part of the uh, part of the main uh, America's elite, super elite, elitist elite team of just a few people. Uh, he's been, you know, put on the on the benches as a as a non GI Joe person now, and he's sort of holding a torch for them. And um, what I quite like is that there's this kind of link between this backup story and, and having Gung Ho back and them putting in a data desk profile in there in the comic and and using that profile to kind of link back to the story as, as well and, and sort of add some extra layers there. And it's sort of talking about kind of his loyalty to, to G.I. Joe and, and sort of, I think, uh, an, an unwillingness to to let it go. Um, so he's been sort of doing some some on his own spare time, keeping um, tabs on Cobra and, and Co, which I think is how how comes he uh, turns up in, in the Dreadnought compound that he's been keeping an eye out on what's going on there. So uh, was able to come swoop in and help out when, uh, when Stalker and Storm Shadow found themselves in trouble. How, how do you feel about uh, uh, Joe we haven't seen showing up 
it's it's fine. I think it's it's a nice use of gung ho and it fits into his milieu. But I guess the implication that that he's kind of that unwilling to let go of his GI Joe life and move on to doing something else, and to the to the extent that he's kind of running GI Joe missions in his spare time, um, seems like potentially a little bit of a um, step too far. Hmm. Uh, another step too far. Xandar versus Storm Shadow. Storm Shadow swoops in to save Stalker, and he slices Xandar's weapon into a million bits rather than Xandar into a million bits, which maybe would be more productive. And somehow Xandar is able to take down both Storm Shadow and Stalker, which I thought Xandar Xandar a little bit OP there. I, I would I think um, Storm Shadow's on a slightly different level to him. Yeah, that scene didn't work for me. Is this in chapter one or chapter two? Chapter one. Yeah, that scene didn't work for me because Stalker's got his arms crossed above his head to stop Xandar from, you know, smashing him with a with his weapon. And then in this reverse angle, we're now seeing POV what Stalker sees, which is up and above past xandar storm shadows flying down and drawing a sword and then there's that third panel on a page where storm shadow is still in midair and doing some fancy sword slashing and xandar's head isn't in that panel and xandar's weapon isn't in that panel and stalker's arms aren't in that panel so it sort of feels like stalker uh storm shadow is like still 10 feet away and then the next panel is this reaction shot on Xandar with a good expression where his weapon is sort of popping into bits, having just been sliced and diced. And and I, I guess he's taking a step back in that moment, but I feel like right then Storm Shadow lands right in front of him, if not mm-hmm. on him, and then kicks him, right? But no, what happens in the next panel is Xandar is like throwing a grenade at us with his arm outstretched. And again, I don't see Stalker or Storm Shadow within like one foot or two feet of him and i think wait weren't he and stalker just grappling like they were almost touching and wouldn't storm shadow have landed right there in order to slice his weapon like that it's like the the story is inconsistent because all of a sudden he's actually far enough away that he can throw a grenade not like drop a grenade at their feet and his feet but throw a grenade at them and then the next panel with them sort of coughing with this like smoky haze around, it's like, wait, how is he like 30 feet away now? So that is a that is an art and storytelling and scripting sort of disagreement right there, uh, which which took me out of the story. And I'm 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 always willing to give the the ninjas in G.I. Joe some extraordinary abilities, you know, like is it issue I can't remember, is it issue 24 of the Marvel run where, or 32 or something, where Storm Shadow is locked in a, like a seamless cell and then they go back to it and he's gone? Yeah. yeah. Like, how did he get out? It's like, no, they got out because Larry Hama snapped his fingers because he's the writer and he can, he can sort of do whatever he wants. And as long as you can't see the magic trick, you'll believe in the magic, right? It's like, no, he got out because he's a ninja and that ninjas can do anything, right? And if you like cornered Larry Hama and you're like, explain it. It's like, I don't know that there's an explanation, but it's like, I'm eight and I'm reading a comic. So that's just fun, right? I, I read that issue later than eight, but that's the 
That's the idea. Yeah. And this is like, sort of until, happening until until I need to show it. You know, I don't I don't have right. to figure out the explanation other than he's a ninja and he's good at that stuff. Yes. And that works for me. My disbelief is suspended. This thing that I see in movies sometimes where um, at the end of the movie, the hero is really beaten up mm-hmm. and they're clearly losing. And then they like take a moment to take a step back and regroup. Sometimes it's like a boxing movie or sometimes it's a superhero movie. <laughs> or a Hulk Hogan fight. <laughs> and then like they remember something that someone said, you know, like their mentor or their wife, or it cuts to like their mentor or their wife sort of mm. across the way, like in the audience yelling like, you can do it. And then they get this second wind. And I feel like in some movies that is not earned because there is no requisite store of energy that they could call upon. It's like, no, no, the best this is going to be as a draw. But instead they like come out as if like the previous 10 minutes of punishing fighting hadn't been happening. And they'd like take down the antagonist and they win. And then, you know, the movie's over. And I think, well, that seems inconsistent. It's like the writer Mm -hmm. just like snapped their fingers and said, Oh, instead of like they're down to 10% health, they're back to 60% health, right? And that kind of thing is happening here with this this storm shadow uh Xandar thing. And 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 because it's a spatial thing because because I don't buy the the actual like kinetics the yeah, geography of this fight. It's, it's a like, storytelling necessity that that they need to be in that pit uh, and so Zandar needs to make it happen somehow, but um, there's just a couple of beats that maybe don't quite work. To- right, right. Okay, yes. Thank you for saying that. So there, there's a sentence missing there, which is Xandar needs to be a few feet away so he can press the button and the place that they're all standing, but really Stalker and Storm Shadow are standing, is a trap door. Yeah. And if you, you could sell this if you had different panels of right as storm shadow lands having finished his sword slashing if the camera is aiming down and we see the two of them or the three of them and the ground and show xandar like falling back and stumbling away backwards like yeah. oh he's getting away from oh he was standing on the trap door too push the button they fall yeah yeah and then in terms of the two joes are now locked in this sort of seamless vault Right. That's that's when I thought, oh, this is like that Hama Storm Shadow thing. Well, I don't know how Blaylock's going to explain that Storm Shadow and Stalker can get out of this. But Storm Shadow, with a snap of a Larry Hama, with a snap of a writer's fingers, Storm Shadow can get, get out, can get out of anything. And this one has a very real, real world explanation. No, Gung Ho showed up and, and rescued them. So I like that surprise. And the, the su- surprise of when they open it up and they, they're gone. Um, this is this was one of my favorite lines of dialogues, actually, that... Zanya says, "You couldn't have poisoned the ninja instead." <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought that was a that was a good beat to uh, to end it on. Uh, one one quick thing. Uh, there's a nice there's a nice um, parallelism or mirroring here where the the trap door closes, uh, and we see Xandar POV from the Joes, and then you turn the page, and now I can't tell which kid, but. What I it's it's Xandar or Zartan, I can't tell. Or Zarana? I can't tell. I can't tell the three kids apart. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is Xandar. Sorry. This is Xandar coming out of a box and he was complaining that okay. uh, uh, that his brother hadn't helped him and and they don't know where he is and he's 
then away um hitching a hitching a ride so zorana's the blonde uh yeah whatever that hair color is yeah <laughs> okay okay so there's there's a nice parallel where we see we see a, a, a door hatch closing yeah on xandar and then we see a door not opening but having been opened yeah um so that's that's a nice bit of you know transition of, yes yeah we were talking about films and there was a panel in the second part where uh, gung-ho is fighting torch and he sort of leaps up from behind him out of the water and that was reminded me of a film and i was struggling to think exactly what it was is it is it rambo it's apocalypse now okay is does he sort he's under the water and he comes out the water from behind someone and grabs him yeah, yeah. Uh, it's Martin Sheen's character in Apocalypse Now, Colonel, uh, Colonel uh, Captain Willard. Yeah, you're looking at the water, and it's nighttime, and it's lit by, I think, fire, and he just vertically, you know, his his head and then his forehead and his eyes just come up out of the water. And it's also slightly alluded to in Bob Peake's movie poster uh, for Apocalypse Now, but. Uh, yeah, anytime you see in any movie or comic book someone, particularly a you know soldier or military person, coming up out of the water like that, that's an allusion to Apocalypse Now. Or if someone hasn't seen that, an allusion to something that's alluding to Apocalypse Now. Cop- Coppola's famous Vietnam retelling of uh, Dante's Inferno. And also, of course, inspired by Joseph Conrad's novel Heart of Darkness. Um, mm-hmm. I think I'm just looking at the clip. I'm not sure if it was Apocalypse Now that I was thinking of. I think it might be something else because I can see oh, I can see it, Martin Sheen come, it, coming out of the water. Is it First Blood? I think I think it's First Blood. I think there might be a oh. part where I don't know. <laughs> maybe there's something. Maybe maybe it's something else entirely, or maybe I'm you know just what? imagining it. But uh, I have I have never seen First Blood. Oh, you should. I I know. I'm I, there are movie theaters near my home that that screen. Old movies, not digitally, but on thirty-five millimeter film, and I—that's I, how I see old movies. I don't watch old movies on TV. I, or I don't, I don't rent DVDs. Rent DVDs. I don't know who rents DVDs. <laughs> um, you know, like I'd never seen Tootsie, and I'd never seen Flatliners, and Tootsie came to this movie theater uh, three months ago, and Flatliners was what was that last year? Mm. First Blood is quite different to Tootsie. Uh- <laughs> Uh, I, I, when I was in school, the cinematographer to First Blood did come to our uh, like auditorium and give a presentation on it and his other movies, and he showed several clips from it. So I know about First Blood. Uh, uh, list, and, uh, listeners, um, if if you know what film uh, I am trying to remember, where someone is in the water and they sort of leap up behind someone uh, with their arms in the air and grab them from behind, uh, you know. Please let me know. Is it is it First Blood I'm thinking of? Is it Predator? Is it something, um, some big 80s action movie? Anyway, I, I know it must be something, but um, not 100% sure. Um, okay, so uh, a, little, a little nitpick in that uh, security camera footage in the first chapter, uh, Thrasher's hair, when, when uh, I really need... Thrasher's hair is just all green here, and it's it's a shorter, spikier haircut. And when I think Thrasher, 
I think the 1986 figure with more hair that is black and mm. yellow. And uh, this costume on this guy doesn't look like Thrasher's costume at all. And so I thought, no. oh, I guess that's one of the other dreadnoughts who, you know, they recruited when they went national. You know, if I'm only going to get to see Thrasher for three panels in this whole story, I sure want to know it's Thrasher without yeah. him saying, oh, Thrasher will identify himself in the third person by saying his name. You know, like, <laughs> I, I really, I really want to like, oh, there's Thrasher. Not like, oh, he's telling me he's Thrasher. <laughs> What's happening? Zartan runs away, but is the tree? What is, what does that mean? Let me, <laughs> let me go to page 13 of chapter two and see what I meant. One, <laughs> two, three. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, the page after Zartan for a moment uses his huh. ability to look like um, the assassinated hardmaster. This is page 13 of the second chapter. Zartan's running away from us, from Storm Shadow, and he says in the distance, stay there and meditate on it. And uh, oof, there's, a, there's the letter I with serifs in the middle of a word. Okay, and the next panel, uh, Storm Shadow says... I can't believe the depths to which you have sunk. I will find you. And this sort of oddly menacing tree branch is in front of him. And then in the third panel, this weird uh, sort of bony brown arm grabs Storm Shadow. And then Storm Shadow flips, is flipping Zartan onto his back. And so I thought, wait, is Zartan the tree? Yeah. Did Zartan, did he run away, but then come back and jump up in the tree and then his arm pretended to be a tree branch. Okay, so you just said yeah as if this was like A obvious and B well done. Is this is this obvious and well done? Uh well, I did I didn't notice it until you pointed it out, but once I noticed it I was like, yeah, okay. I can see this. So Zartan has either turned into a tree or has camouflaged into the into a being part of the tree and uh is is kind of re- reaching down probably he's probably camouflaged himself as a branch of the tree and is reaching but he down just, and grabbing but he just ran away he's he's 15 he's, f- <laughs> he's very quick well okay and storm shadow is notoriously slow and then uh, <laughs> uh, um interesting um uh, another idea another codename suggestion um <laughs> for that figure was slow shadow <laughs> interesting that something is both a ninja and interesting. Uh, I th- I think you're writing a jingle. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay, so and then I thought, okay, if is Zartan not using chameleon DNA to actually change, but using a hologram projector like Larry Hama has him in the Marvel run, and he's projecting himself running away. But you know the hologram thing. Well, I guess there's a hologram in front of the, the door to his underground bunker. Anyway, this, this scene with him running away and then he's hiding in the tree and then Storm Shadow sees through the disguise or the trick and, and flips him onto his back. Cool idea. Doesn't work. Uh, the, the way that it's told doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. He's um, there is. There's not there's, there's not sufficient reason for to, to kind of explain the gap between Zartan yeah. running away and then Storm Shadow losing like, track of him. Okay, if you did that on a page turn, if the final panel of a page, of a right page, is Zartan running away and 15 feet away, and then you turn the page, and the first panel on the next page is this same image of looking down past the tree branch as Storm Shadow is 
is sort of sneaking, then you have this sort of embedded like time jump, like, oh, this could be several moments later and or an hour later. But the immediacy of one panel to the next, I think it's it's too much of a of a leap. And again, in terms of the sort of how the the two artists of this story are placing, choreographing, and keeping track of characters in space, right? The final two panels of this same page, Storm Shadow is standing over Zartan because he has his sword at Zartan's face. And then Storm Shadow gets whacked on the back with something, looks like a metal rod. And he says, N-N-N-G-H. And then in the final panel, Zanya is like, 15 feet away on the swamp fire or even swamp scare uh holding the, the the briefcase and she's she's sort of driving parallel away from storm shadow not like in the distance into like a vanishing point in the middle of the panel and she says i've wanted to do that for a long time dad get on and i'm thinking what did she hit him with mm. is she well one of her hands is holding a, a briefcase and their hand has the handlebar so did she have a pipe and she dropped it or in that panel where he's getting whacked is is sort of the the brownish on the right side of the panel is that actually the briefcase why does the briefcase have like a lead pipe shaped trim to it so you know this this i'm sure for some of our listeners this is a lot of nitpicking and they're much more interested in sort of the emotional quality of the scene that uh, Storm Shadow and Zartan have this history that, you know, Storm Shadow has been a Cobra and now he's a Joe again and Zartan is losing himself and, you know, revenge and revenge. And then, you know, Zanya saves him and that's cool. Uh, and those things are all neat to me. But, you know, twice on this page, I get distracted by like a spatial or storytelling lack of clarity. And so, you know, it's sort of like if I'm in a movie theater and I'm really into a scene and the person next to me is like starts talking really loudly, you know, so my attention is split between trying to listen to what they're saying, trying to ignore what they're saying and get back to the movie and just being in the movie. Uh, okay, so I guess the a key part of this story is sort of like building out Zartan's backstory and the, these family dynamics and this this whole idea of you know him being on on medication and and his sort of mental health issues about the fact that he keeps you know his keeps on sort of changing his identity perhaps for prolonged periods of of time and and you know struggling to to grasp onto who he really is what do you make of all of that tim do you think it do you think it's largely successful yeah there are two things happening here, and they may be in conflict. One is Blaylock is going full steam into the original Larry Hama Zartan character. And uh, I'm going to hold off on a sentence until we get to the final page. But that Zartan has this mysterious history, and maybe we get to finally learn about it. And Blaylock is allowed to be the guy to tell us this story. So those are two things that are, you know, good or interesting or potentially interesting. And and I'm on board with those. 
And then the other thing that Blaylock is doing here, and this is where the conflict may be, is he presents Zartan as a damaged and sympathetic character. Mm. And on the final two pages, and then a little earlier where he begs uh, Storm Shadow not to drop the case, right? Don't! Please! Right? You should teach your daughter to hit harder, uh, says Storm Shadow, threatening to drop this valuable briefcase into the swamp. Man, if only he'd, got, he, if only he'd gotten a pelican case. Those things are watertight. <laughs> um, that's, that's what I store my fancy electronics in. I know they had those in 2005. And then Zanya's about to shoot Storm Shadow, and Zartan says, Zanya, stop. Storm Shadow, please, listen. I, I thought we put our differences aside. Don't do this. You, you have no idea what you hold, right? And then they make a deal after Storm Shadow opens the case, right, and really violates Zartan's privacy. And because <laughs> he's begging him to not open the case, much less drop the case, right? Well, Zartan's done worse to him. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So I think Blaylock is very well treading on the, you know, how Hama has characters accept and forgive and move on. Um, and this turn here where it's like, you know, going into the mission, we we definitely want Storm Shadow to, you know, to hit Zartan in the face, you know, to bash him and to bring him in or to like stop the valuable thing the biological weapon or the nuclear briefcase, right? That Zartan's going back for. And it turns out to be something A, not dangerous, and B, it's it's rather humane if he lets Zartan have it. Separate from the deal he makes to uh Zartan will then toss him the antidote because Stalker's been poisoned, right? Which we haven't mentioned up until now. So those things are all good and interesting. On the final the him begging Storm Shadow and then the final two pages where Zartan is, uh, this is not a scientific term, going crazy. Uh, he's sitting in a car and he's spilled his pills, his lithium. And the letterer is having fun changing fonts uh, and giving a sort of a, a ragged, wobbly edge to his uh, word balloons. Um, and then the final page, he's just saying his name over and over and over, trying to remember who he is looking at this family photo. So the thing, the thing that's in conflict is Seeing Zartan, this cool, vicious, smart, in-control character, utterly reduced to a sympathetic and weak character. And I think from a writing standpoint, it's pretty bold. As a G.I. Joe fan, I don't know if I want to see Zartan, you know, sort of debased like that. So I'll, I'll turn it back on you, Mark. How do you feel about the ending? Um... I think I think I'm with it almost up until that last panel and and it just it seems like that one just is it sort of turned up to 11 maybe just uh you know a couple of notches too high and the you know the throbbing vein and the big tears coming down his face and uh just a, a teeny tiny teeny tiny too too overdone perhaps it sort of it kind of escalates very sort of quickly and in, in those last pages from something that maybe maybe wasn't quite at that kind of uh i guess wasn't quite foreshadowed to be quite as extreme as is it suddenly just you know cranks it up to on that last on that last panel right now the sentence that i wanted to loop back to where i think that it's 
interesting and fascinating and and maybe maybe earned maybe maybe Blaylock really does get to do this right this is from Larry Hama's original Zartan dossier from the back of the package in 1984 this is not the variation after the controversy where this sentence got dropped but the original dossier ends with psychological profile Extreme paranoid schizophrenic grows into various multiple personalities to such an extent that the original personality mm. becomes buried and forgotten. As far as I can remember, Hama's never carried that mm. in his stories. You know, he has Zartan going to Japan and sort of begging the sword master to take him in. Yep. And uh, he has Zartan on this, you know, mission from Cobra Commander to infiltrate the Rashikage, and Zartan kills Serpentor. That's pretty cool. Zartan pretends to be a couple Joes, and he infiltrates the pit. And that, what is it, covered to 48, 47, not 47, 40, the one I was talking about in our previous episode where he's he's strangling gung-ho to get into the pit. It's amazing Mike Zek cover at a, at a Dutch angle. Oh my gosh, it's just Two heads, an arm, a gun, and a wall. <laughs> it's one of the best Jojo covers because it's so bold. And Hama has not gone into this. And so um, Zartan is definitely a favorite of Playlock. And he's got this sentence from Hama, which had been, <laughs> forgive the pun, sort of disavowed mm. with with the update of that toy packaging after the controversy about that word right uh, the term paranoid schizophrenic if i i'll expand expand that a little bit just because when um zartan is he's sort of going through you know he, he sort of changes his alliance and he changes his kind of outlook on the world and his sort of re, you know redemptive stance and all these kind of things and um he he kills the blind master and then kind of assumes his personality and sort of I think in terms of everything that we've seen from Zartan, that's probably the the biggest role where he's just sort of immersed himself as being, you know, literally trying to replace the previous person and, and spend a prolonged period of time as that person and, and sort of mentoring, is it Tyrone? Uh, and, and then again, in the sort of the IDW era, era I think there's been in that sort of component of the, the pulls of his different sides of his psyche in terms of the, the the villain versus the person trying to you know redeem himself uh, at different uh, different occasions yeah yeah i'll just go back a a step with you and and agree i think the writing in this final scene is 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 powerful but i it's it, the the final scene has turned up so so much i think i don't know if zartan can come back from that you know in, in these stories, like the next time Zartan shows up and he's being cool and calm and collected, I'll think, well, he was crying in the car. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I want to be kind to people in mental distress, but also this is, you know, this is a cool villain who I love and love to hate. And it's different than if Cobra Commander might be, you know, captured and he begs to get away or he begs for nice treatment because I feel like that's part of his character. You know, he's trying to talk his way out. And I might be leaning more into the TV show here than the comic, because I know that Hama has a very different take on the character than than they did on the cartoon. But in my mind, they very much cross over. You know, I, I, I'm not supposed to hear Chris Lotta, the voice actor, when I read the comic, but I do. Yeah. And when I started reading the story, I thought, 
Oh, right. Blaylock writes the Dreadnoughts classified miniseries. Mm-hmm. Um, I this wonder... Is, this is where it's reprinted, yeah. Uh, yes, yes. And I, I, I was like, oh, is this is probably not in the Disavowed book with these issues. I wonder if this is in the in that in that collection. I spy with my little eye. Do you want to go first? Because I suspect you'll probably say one of mine. Oh, I don't. <laughs> you don't have uh, any? Okay. All right. No. Yeah, I don't. No, I don't have them. I'll, I'll, I'll do them both then. So I spy Joe Muscarella Jr., Oh, winner. yeah, 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 okay, yeah. <laughs> winner of Diamond Previews G.I. Joe Open Enlistment Contest on page 19, part one, hanging out at the bar. And and even without that context, looking at that page, it's very clear that that, uh, that person drinking at the bar is a likeness. Uh, so it's it's bound to be somebody. <laughs> yeah, um, when, when I... When I got to that page, I thought, who is that? That is definitely someone. <laughs> so it's like the artist is either putting their friend in or themselves, but it's so in focus and detailed compared to everything else in the panel. Yeah. It, either they, they drew it zoomed in or they drew it larger and then shrunk it down. And the, you know, the pose and the perspective mostly work, but it, it, it jumps out for those uh, reasons. And... In the letters page of of this issue, uh, at the beginning of, of the letters page, the editor explains this. And I have to say, I had... F- uh, oh, I guess, okay, it's not that I'd forgotten it, it's I hadn't known about it, because it's not a contest that was in an issue of G.I. Joe or a letters page. It was a contest that must have been in Diamond Previews, right? Diamond Diamond Previews is the monthly catalog that Diamond Comic Distributors, which is no longer the the main, but a main uh, distributor of comics, right? Your your comic book store orders comics from Diamond, and then UPS ships those comics from the printer to your store. Uh, The contest must have been there. Yeah. What's your other iSpy? My other spy is New Toy. New Toys! So we've got Dreadnought Torch version 2 from 2005, Valor versus Venom. It was included in the Sergeant Bazooka versus Dreadnought Torch 2-pack, which was another contest winner, the winner of the first ever G.I. Joe Fans Choice poll. So previously, when torches appeared in the Devil's Due issues, they've, they've sort of used a kind of updated look of the previous you know version one just sort of aging him up a bit and i think this is the first time that this uh, version two torch appears with like a sort of the roll neck <laughs> short sleeved sweater top thing that he's got uh yeah is he is he sort of sort of like shipwrecks updated costume a little it's bit like sim- that isn't it similar, yeah a similar top yes I, d- I don't have any eye spies but i'll i'll just call out that uh I think I said Swampfire several times before when I meant Chameleon. Uh, so I'll say Swampfire now. Uh, so Blaylock fits in three different uh, G.I. Joe vehicles from 84 and 86. Oh, four, right. The Dreadnought Cycle. Yeah, anyway, uh, a bunch of old vehicles. 
cool. I did notice one error detected. Error detected. Error detected. No prize incoming. It was from the first part where the Dreadnoughts are about to stop at that bar. Uh, the Dreadnoughts are on their Dreadnoughts cycle. They're driving past uh, a bar called Bottom Shelf. And one of the Dreadnoughts says, Wetting the whistle before we head on. Sounds good to me. And Zartan replies, Wet, Wet it, it all you want. want. This, this is, is the, the end, end of the road, road for you. you. And in both instances, uh, wetting and wet is spelt W-H-E-T. So there's a common mistake of the expression uh, to wet one's whistle, spelt W-E-T, and to wet one's appetite, spelt W-H-E-T, because of the identical pronunciation. So since the 14th century, whistle has been a metaphor for the mouth or throat, particularly as an instrument for speaking and singing. So your whistle is the thing with which you, uh, you know, sing, you know, whatever. So to wet one's whistle uh, was an expression to mean to have a drink, you know, stick something wet, liquid down your old throat hole. Whereas wetting, W-H-E-T-T-I-N-G, uh, refers to the sharpening of an edge of a tool or weapon on a stone. And that was a little bit more common in the medieval times than it is today. So we don't normally get that uh, that use of it. Um, but instead, it's often used to uh, in conjunction with wetting an appetite. And that means to increase someone's interest and wish for something by giving them a small experience of it. So I've read the Ashcan edition of Transformers from uh, from San Diego Comic Con, and that has whetted my appetite for issue one when it comes out. Just being a bit contemporary there, Tim. So there we go. Wetting your whistle versus wetting your appetites. Very good. Very good. Uh, uh, on, on our next episode, listeners, Mark will very carefully compare uh, in like Flynn and in like Flint. <laughs> I think that's 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 us done. Is it with the with the issue? Do we should we just give it a score and a and a and a summary? Yeah. Yo, yo, cola, nut, grape, soda. It's yo, Joey. Do you want to go first? Uh, five, six. Uh, it's a pretty good story, but there's that ending thing. You know, the art is a good start, but but not there for me. So I'll say five, but not a like, devils do, how dare you? I'm a G.I. Joe fan. Five, but a eh, five. Yeah, I, I think I'm pretty much in the in the same boat with you there, Tim. Um it's it's you know it's enjoyable story um i went in prepared to be disappointed by it and and i wasn't um i i was actually pleasantly surprised um the art is good in places and sort of uh, almost there in others and and there's the story they do an awful lot in um not a huge amount of space and and generally uh, it's quite uh, successful so 
yeah, I'm, I think I'm around about that same level, maybe a six, just to, just to be a little bit uh, more glass half full. Um, so next time on Talking Joe Disavowed, we'll continue our look at the America's elite era of G.I. Joe. We'll be picking up with issue nine. And, uh, and we're also going to be looking at the special missions issues. And we're going to try and have some special guests along the way as well. And uh, then we'll also be covering other things here and there. Looking forward to the future in the Skybound era and looking back to the past and digging out some interesting stuff from uh, G.I. Joe history. So, Tim, where can people find you when you are not talking to me about G.I. Joe comics? Video essays from my creative partners and I at our YouTube channel, Atomic Abe Productions. My brick-and-mortar comic book store in Somerville, Massachusetts is Hub Comics. And I write about G.I. Joe at a realamericanbook.com. Excellent stuff. You can find more about Talking Joe at the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk is the website that has links to all of those places. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We're also on Patreon at patreon.com slash talkingjoe. So a big thanks to all our backers, Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher, Justin, Rob, Brian, and Shane who are all getting early access to episodes as well as some exclusive content. And that is us done for now. But remember that... Nobody Beats Talking Joe! An international podcast! Laters! Laters!